Welcome to God is Open. Uh, on today's episode, we are going to be talking about the spectrum map of open theism. This is a spectrum map, uh, a graphic that can be found on the God is Open webpage under What is Open Theism. It just maps the different spectrum of open theism from the philosophical side to the biblical side. I have on the phone with me Joseph Sabo and uh, he was talking about this chart, and he said, well, it kind of looks a little suspicious with uh, Chris Fisher's name all the way over to the right there. <laughs> and so I was like, well, we could discuss uh, how this uh, chart is set up, and you can offer suggestions, and uh, we could get your input on this as well as mine. And uh, anyone else who would like to give input on how this uh, chart is set up, I'm not trying to dominate the process. I just seem to be the only one who's you know, putting input into these things originally. Right. Yeah, I was just ribbing you a little bit, you know, since you made the chart, you put yourself all the way to the biblical side. I thought that was kind of humorous. Yeah, so what I did in response is I have a draft book that I sent you. I don't know yeah. if you had a time at all to review that at all. but uh, I looked at it um, somewhat briefly, but I haven't had time. I'm so busy with work and everything. I've got a pile of books that I've bought that I need to read, so I haven't really been able to uh, dig into it as much as I'd like to, but uh, I think we've had enough conversation and, you know, we're probably both well-read enough to have at least a halfway intelligent discussion about some of the authors and, like you were talking about, just the map itself and what the metrics are to rate people and things like that. Yeah. So with that, um, I'll talk about my basic mapping process, um, and then you could give input into that, or else we could go directly to talking about the different names on the list. So basically the mapping process, it has to deal with uh, the philosophical side is the dignum dio side. Every time someone makes an argument of, you know, this is what God has to be like, and they give some sort of philosophical proof or they give some sort of systematic proof, and it's not ne necessarily a textual critical proof, that will shift them on the spectrum from the right side to the left side. And alternatively, if there's a philosophical person, maybe like a Thomas J. Ord, who throws in a biblical proof, uh, a textual proof based on a citation of the text of the Bible, those sorts of arguments are going to be shifting people to the right of the spectrum towards the biblical spectrum. So the philosophical side of the spectrum is uh, concerned with dignum dio theology. Dignum dio means that which is fitting of God. That philosophy is based off of taking God and trying to decide, you know, what is what kind of attributes are fitting of God, what kind of attributes make God God, what kind of attributes should we expect God to have. Whereas the biblical side, that's the, the textual critical side, the side that's trying to look at the text and try to pull from the text what the individual author believed and what he was trying to communicate to his audience. Yeah, um, I think the chart is, is set up pretty good for the most part. Um, I'm, I'm kind of a philosophical guy myself, so I, I kind of take a little issue with just the word philosophical being used there because it, it's somewhat negative because it's placed up against, you know, a biblical view. And obviously we want to be maintaining a biblical worldview, a biblical philosophy, if you will, because a philosophy is just a worldview. Um, but under the chart you also have, you know, Dignum Dio listed there, I think Neil Molinus. So you sort of define on the spectrum, you know, what you mean by being a philosophical open theist. And then over to the right, you obviously have those counterpoints. So you would have creationism, inerrancy, 
um, et cetera. So I think that the way that the chart's laid out, if you take into account the, the bottom graph, is a pretty good indication of uh, where all those authors should fall. You know, I think it should do a pretty good job. Right. Uh, not have not having read your book, you know, I can't really you know speak too much about what your beliefs are. But just talking to you and things like that, I mean, you seem to pretty much, in my opinion anyway, have a pretty good head on your shoulders, and you at least um, genuinely strive to figure out you know what the text is actually saying, as opposed to a lot of people. And I run into this with Calvinists all the time, um, and even Arminians, or even some open theists, you know. God is a certain way, therefore that's what this passage is saying. You know, that's the opposite of what an honest, an intellectually honest person should be doing when they're trying to read any kind of text, let alone the scriptures. You know, you don't go into a book necessarily, any book, and say, well, you know, this is how these things are, that's therefore what the author is trying to say. You know, you have to let the author, the authorial intent of what is being said come through and try to do your best with all your presuppositions, because we all have presuppositions, mm-hmm. um, to to divulge yourself of that and allow the text to speak to you. That makes a lot of sense. In the next iteration of this chart, I'm going to try to uh, make sure that the philosophical has a subcategory, not a subcategory, but like a little description next to it that talks about the philosophical, the dignum dio, and the biblical is the textual critical. And so not necessarily, it's those other attributes, the neo-Molinism, the errancy, evolutionism, those aren't really de- defining characteristics. Those are just trend characteristics, whereas the dignum dio versus the textual critical, those are the attributes which shift people more on the spectrum. Yeah, those are sort of the base characteristics, yeah. We should point out that the philosophical side, some philosophical open theists, uh, they just uh, reject the Old Testament text. They say that uh, Revelation is progressive, and uh, you know the theology of the Old Testament was good for Israel at the time. But we, as history progresses, you learn more about God. And we're not saying necessarily that that's wrong, but that sort of argument would shift you to the philosophical side. So it's not necessarily that you're intellectually dishonest or not true to the text per se, but uh, you're you're shifting away from inerrancy, and a shifting away from inerrancy allows you more philosophical play with the text. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I kind of stand by N.T. Wright and his position on in- inerrancy, where I kind of think that it's, in my mind, it's kind of a ridiculous doctrine. Um, and that may ruffle some feathers, but that's fine. You know, I think that there's there's value in the text, and God means what he says when he says it. Jesus Christ means what he says when he says it. You know, there is a message that is to be had, but as far as, you know, if there are no errors in the Bible itself, that's kind of ridiculous. Um, everyone, I think, that holds to inerrancy doesn't necessarily hold to, well, you know, the manuscripts we have today are perfect because the manuscripts that we have today are hundreds of years older, if not thousands of years older, than they were originally written. So there's some... There's going to be some error, you know, presumably when you're transcribing, copying, you know, recopying, recopying the copy, recopying another copy. So any view of inerrancy is going to allow for some of that. So yeah. then you kind of have to say, well, the originals had no error. Yep, Which, inerrancy does have to be defined. Um, some people, like the Bob Enyarts, we got him on the list. He says inerrancy is defined as the original autographed is inherent. Right. 
Uh, the H. Roy Elseth of the world, H. Roy Elseth converted um, shortly after he wrote his book on open theism. He converted to this uh, King James onlyism. So he takes more of a King James onlyist approach to inerrancy, where he thinks there's an English Bible in existence that's actually inerrant. Right. So there's different views of what exactly inerrancy doctrine is, what that means. And then you have people like, you know, you would come across with postmodernists today who would basically allegorize all the scripture. You know, it's all filled with historical error. It's all filled with, you know, any kind of error um, to the point where we can't even know what's being said. So that's that's the kind of denial of inerrancy that's a little bit different than saying, well, this number might be different in the book of First Chronicles as opposed to this number in the book of Second Kings. Yeah. You know, so there's there's a difference there, you know, because the, the second view where we allow for maybe some copy error or something like that is not going to try to take away from the value of the text itself, whereas, you know, you have other um, parties like the Jesus Seminar, for example, that seeks to sort of disprove the text for various reasons, you know, so... I think that there's a there's a stigma, I think, maybe with when you say inerrancy, you know, and if you say, well, you know, I deny that or, or whatever the case may be, that people may think that you're trying to get at the text or repudiate its uh, level of authority in some way. But that's not necessarily the case, you know. I, right. I've never, I've never seen the originals, and even if I saw them, I can't read Greek and I can't read Hebrew. So if there's errors in them, I don't know. You know, I've never read them. That's true. So, so those three things—the neo-Molinism, the errancy, evolutionism—those are trend attributes. Those aren't defining attributes. So, so there definitely could be an evolutionist who also claims an inerrancy. They might consider Genesis um, maybe a text which is uh, polemic against uh, the pagan religions of the day, and see it not necessarily in a literal sense, but they'd be trying to change the genre. Whereas, you know, someone who claims an inerrancy and creationism would say it's a historic text versus a polemical text. Yeah, I think that there's a there's a perfect example of that in two open theist authors. You have Greg Boyd, who holds to theistic evolution um, and sort of allegorizes the creation story as, you know, the ancient Near Eastern account that was written uh, going against the pagan creation myths of the day. And then you have someone like Bob Enyart, who is a strict, literal, dumb-earth creationist, you know, and, and advocates that position quite heavily. You know, those two guys, while both open theists, you know, hold to two completely different views there. Yeah. So let's uh, move on to the names that are actually on the list. I mean, names could be added. I added the guys that I kind of knew. Um, the, like the people like the David Bassingers of the world, I don't, I don't, I'm not really familiar with his work. I'm not familiar with what he's done. So his name's not on the list. I wouldn't even know where to categorize him. Um, <laughs> Freethium, I need to probably put him on the list somewhere, but I need to read up more and figure out where exactly he would fall in the spectrum. So the people on the list, they're kind of arbitrary by my knowledge, and my knowledge of some of these people might not be exhaustive. Uh, I know more of the John Sanders, the Elsefs, the Sayas, the Enyarts of the world. Um, I know a lot about Jesse Morrell. I've read Ord's book, his new book. I have a review of it. I listened to both Rhoda and Hasker at the Randomness Conference. 
and uh, we might be able to get into some interesting stories from that conference as we go along. So let's start with the first one, William Hasker, a philosophical open theist. Any objection there? I just want to say, first of all, I love that dude because he reminds me of the dude from the Big Lebowski. <laughs> his mannerisms, his face, the way he talks, he's just so laid back. I have, I have no objection at all to him being all the way on the left. If we're going to limit, I think that we should limit maybe um, our critique of these authors to strictly the open view. You know, I don't think that we should take into account the whole theology. Right. Then there's going to be, you know, we're just opening the door for entire huge discrepancies with everybody. you got hyper-dispensationalists. I mean, cessationists everywhere. So, I mean, it's just... At the bottom of my chart, I, I kind of have, like, a issues which can map anywhere on the spectrum where it's, right. it doesn't really play into where you're going to be ranking on the open theist spectrum because there's disagreement between the philosophical and the, the biblical, textual, critical advocates among themselves on those issues. So those don't play a part in where someone maps philosophical. But William Hasker, yeah, like you, the first time I saw him, I'm like, who is this guy? He's kind of this uh, <laughs> weird hippie guy, and he just he talks about philosophy a lot. And I haven't really ever heard him use too much biblical evidences or biblical allusions to illustrate his points. It's it's a lot about metaphysics, and he seems to be primarily tasked in, in the realm of metaphysics when he's writing or speaking. Yeah, for sure. Um, he writes a lot about the emergent soul, only for the most part, like you said, metaphysical approach. Um, I like some of his philosophical stuff. Um, I think that he does a pretty good job with the problem of evil, which is a solid philosophical question that we have to ask ourselves. You know, if God is good and God is loving, then why is there evil in the world? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think there's something to be said for his contribution to that. His emergent soul stuff, I'll be honest, is a little too deep for me. You know, I, I, I can't really get that much into the metaphysics of, you know, human duality as he does and things like that and resurrection and all that. Um, I do have a couple of his books on my Amazon wish list. So, have you read any of those at all, or no? I haven't had a chance to. Um, my exposure to him has mostly been limited to some YouTube videos um, of him talking uh, at conferences or interviews. Um, you know, just kind of giving brief summaries of a few of his positions. I've not really been able to delve into, you know, what actually drives that too much. Sounds good. Are you familiar at all with the next name on the list, Rhoda? No, I'm not. So Rhoda was also at the uh, Randomness Conference that I went to, and he has various papers out on open theism. And uh, I think if you go to the Wikipedia page on open theism, there's the, these different uh, categories of open theism, uh, you know, bivariance and stuff like that. And that comes, I think it's a copy and paste from one of his papers. I'm going to try to go there real quick. But to me, he seems kind of like uh, a protege of Hasker. So they would both hold to um, involuntary nescience, I suppose, that the feature is inherently unknowable? Uh, yeah, I think they would. And uh, one other person that was at that conference was Richard Swinburne. Um, are you familiar with him at all? No. So Richard Swinburne apparently is uh, a big name in metaphysics, and I was unaware of this when I went to the conference. And and one very funny instance was when I wanted a picture with Thomas J. Ord, and he asked uh, Richard Swinburne to take the picture. And Swinburne, he's like in his 80s or something, like real old, and he didn't really know how to use my camera, so he's trying to look through the flash or something like that. But here, here I am. I'm getting a picture with Thomas J. Ord, 
and like the premier metaphysical theologian in the world has tried to do this picture. And so I figured this out. And so I pulled him in the picture too. So it was uh, me, Will Duffy, Swinburne, and Ord all in this picture. But apparently Swinburne, he he's well known, he's well respected, and uh, he 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 writes all these philosophical books, and he holds to open theism. And he he was telling one of these these people at the conference who was a Calvinist. He said, you know, if there was a way not to be an open theist, I wouldn't be. But uh, that's where you know the metaphysics leads him. And so he's very influential, and a lot of people respect him, and so that's why his name's under the influences. I might, I might push him up to the actual line itself, but then I don't really know what kind of historical philo- philosophical influences there are for open theism. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of um, big names on the chart, and there's a lot of names on the chart that write in depth and very large subjects. You know, it's hard for I think it's hard for one person or two people or maybe even five people to, you know, fully grasp um, the body of work of all the authors. You know, so yep. I think it's good that your approach is, you know, I made this, but, you know, let's talk about it. And if there's going to be some more discussion and we want to move some people, then we can do that. You know, I think that's a good idea. Right. Um, so the next person on the list is Thomas J. Ord. And Thomas J. Ord's uh, theology has been compared to process theism, which I don't think that's uh, disingenuous. I don't think that's not uh, accurate of his belief. His belief is that God cannot act unilaterally, that God has to act bilaterally with people in order to make things happen. Right, and and in a non-coercive way, if I'm understanding him correctly as well. Right. So when I first uh, heard of him, I knew he was an open theist. Um, He was given away for free. The Nature of Love. Um, it's a theology book on love. And I, I pull it up and I start reading it. And it's just almost pure theology. And so that, that was my first exposure to him. Thomas J. Ord's uh, theology, he does talk about the Bible sometimes. He seems to accept some of the biblical principles. And he does reference the text. Whereas I don't see in Hasker or Rhoda where they reference the text. You know, Right, right. So that shifts Ord over to the right, to the right of Hasker and Rhoda, although Thomas J. Ord is almost a process theist. Yeah, I would classify him probably as a process theist, I think, in my own mind. I read that, you know, the parting of the Red Sea, God didn't necessarily act in time there to part the Red Sea, but knew that there was some natural law, that some wind was going to blow and do it, so he directed them there. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's... That's process theism, you know, to a T right there. I mean, if you want a good summary of what process theism is, I mean, I think that's pretty good. You know, he maintains that he's an open theist. I don't think I've ever heard him categorize himself as a process theist. Yep, I asked him actually directly, and I got the Facebook uh, screenshot that's posted on God is Open where I ask him, are you a process theist? Are you an open theist? And he says he's an open theist. And I yeah. think what so, differentiates him is because God acts bilaterally, whereas process theism doesn't have any power in God at all. Right. God is pretty much hands-off of the universe for the most part. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I can I can, I can, can go either way with that. Um, you know, the man says he's an open theist. That's fine. He might have some process leanings. You know, I think we all maybe have some other sort of leaning, you know, to something. So, yeah, it'll be more towards the biblical spectrum as opposed to uh, Hasker at least um, but like you said I mean Thomas Stewart at least references the text you know I don't know 
I think I actually heard an interview with Hasker, and I will try to find this if I'm asked to, where he actually denied inerrancy and then told a story of him sitting in church and someone asked him what he was doing there. You know, but I guess <laughs> the man goes to church. The man goes to church every Sunday and you know talks to people and things like that. So yeah, I mean I would agree with that. So the next name on the list is Richard Rice, and I'm not necessarily too familiar with him. Um, I read some of his work in The Openness of God. If uh, I don't know what extent you've had familiarity with Rice. Um, not too much with him either. Um, you know, I'm aware that he uh, worked on The Openness of God with Hasker and Pinnock, but other than that, um, I can't say that I've really read anything by him. I've not really heard his name mentioned outside of that book either, so I don't know if he uh, if he's continuing to write or or really what's going on with him. To be honest with you. All right. So in the openness of God, I th- thought a very interesting thing was that he um, was given the chapter of the biblical support for open theism, and so that's what he's famous for. And in that chapter, he just he doesn't understand necessarily why he was the one chosen to write this chapter. (laughs) So which says something very interesting. It says that he's not necessarily a biblical or textual type critical guy, and he is more of the philosophical leanings. If he's kind of coerced into writing this chapter that he's uncomfortable with. Right. So I'll have to pull up the direct quotes about that. But that, that that was interesting to me when I was reading through the book, The Openness of God. You know, it's like, how did they pick who writes what chapters? Maybe John Sanders would have been better for that chapter, but then they would have lost John Sanders for writing about the pagan influences in Christianity. Right. So yeah, I guess I guess Rice had to do something, huh? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so so Gregory Boyd's the next name, and Gregory Boyd, Boyd I see as the standard open theist. Not not too uh, biblical, not too philosophical. Good mix of both. He gives sermons going over the various books of the Bible, and then he interprets those books through his Christological systematic theology. Yeah, I, I'm probably most familiar with uh, him. I'm about 20 minutes away from Woodland Hills, and I've been there a few times, and read God of the Possible, probably listened to every every sermon for the most part that I could get my hand on. I work, I'm a machinist, so I'm able to listen to music for about 10 hours a day, so I've, I've listened to quite a bit of Boyd. Yeah, and so what um, are your general impressions about him? Well, for a while... He was a uh, an open theist that believed in election. I know that that you know he said that that came from reading too much Karl Barth. So that's I mean that's kind of interesting. It kind of goes to show his sort of I don't know thinking process. You know he's he's a pretty heady guy. As far as his biblical versus philosophical view, if we're only talking about um, his open theology, I would probably move him a little bit more to the biblical aspect. You know, um, if we're going to draw from his cruciform hermeneutic, that's something that he's kind of newly developed um, over the last 10 years or so. Um, And I believe that he was an open theist before that. So while him being an open theist before the cruciform hermeneutic doesn't necessarily um, predicate that none of that is leaching into his open view, I think that just strictly on the basis of his violent omniscient, um, you know, holding to that God knows what all the choices are, he just doesn't know what we're going to pick, you know, but he can guesstimate with a great certainty. Right. Um, Compared to other authors on the list, while I don't hold to violent omniscience, I would move him a little bit more to the biblical aspect. Yeah, one thing about Boyd that's interesting is uh, he had a thesis, and his thesis was on Charles Harshshorn and process theism. And from what I understand, I haven't read the thesis myself, I need to, 
is that he was picking up some of his ideas and he was using process ideas and morphing them into more um, Christian ideas. Yeah, he, he was kind of trying to create a little bit of a synthesis, I think. Um, but he's gone to, to lengths in the past few years, at least, to sort of distance the open view from process theology. I think that he might notice um, as a few people do, that process thought is kind of beginning to reach in, and uh, I don't want to say take captive people, but I mean, I think they're still insane. So he, he's tried to sort of distance open theism from process theology um, over the last few years, for sure. Yeah, and it might make sense to move him more to the right. He maybe even switch places with Clark Pinnock on the list. Literally, the way I picked uh, where the next person should go is I researched all the quotes of Pinnock that I had highlighted. And uh, since I tend to highlight more of the biblical quotes, maybe my highlighting bias, uh, you know, moved them <laughs> over to the right in my estimation. <laughs> yeah, Pinnock is another really interesting guy. He was a Calvinist for a while. And then I, I suppose just sort of saw the flaws in that system and just took off, you know, in the completely opposite direction. It's sort of my estimation of what happened there. For his benefit, I think for a lot of people's benefit. A lot of his writings against Augustinianism, which I think is in some of his earlier stuff, is really, really good. Um, you know, and the, uh, the thread that seems to run through his thinking as well, you know, is God is love personified. You know? mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's something that Christianity as of late, and I can only say that because I'm 30 years old and I haven't been around for hundreds of years, but from what I can see, you know, kind of tends to lose sight of that or a sort of over-amplify that to the detriment of, you know, some other attributes, perhaps. Yeah, and, and that's that's what we're talking when we're talking about dignum dio theology. Dignum dio, when it comes to open theism, uh, tends to revolve around this idea that God is love, and then they tr- kind of elevate that attribute, and then they try to reinterpret most of the Old Testament texts in light of that. Oh, God didn't kill XYZ nation in the Old Testament because that's unloving. And so you have to kind of understand that in light of the cross, or you have to try to reinterpret that into a loving sense, you know? Which, is, right. yeah, it's, 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 it's a systemological argument. It's not a textual critical argument. I mean, did the author of that text, did they endorse that... Uh, Events did they were they criticizing that event? You know what what's God's reaction to that event in the text? And then from there you could probably make a subjective claim of whether that's loving or not. But based on the text and not based on some sort of overriding systematic or dignum dio theology. Yeah, that's I think that's probably um, where Boyd falls short um, in a lot of people's minds and in my mind to some degree. You know, he sort of, I don't want to say he redacts the entire Old Testament, but he he sort of brushes the Old Testament under the rug, you know, to say, oh, that's not really what God is like. You know, he was just stooping and interacting with the times and, you know, the pagan people. Um, and I think that there's something to be said for that, but you don't have to just throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, even from right. a strictly philosophical standpoint, if you're going to ask yourself, God is good, for example, and he ordered that the Canaanites' babies be killed, then why? You know, and from that philosophical argument, you might get, well, God is love, so there was some, you know, something going on there. Or you could just say, well, maybe the Canaanites were a wholly evil race and they needed to be wiped out, you know. So, I mean, there's there's two sides to that coin, I think. Right. You, I was made to find you. I was made just for you. Made to adore you. I was made to love you. 